to me, naming is the way that you take language and you really put it to work for a brand. For Monday, March 16th, 2020, this is episode 65. Allison Greenberg, what's in a name? Allison is a naming expert, brand strategist, and verbal designer. Allison explained her approach to naming products and brands with a few great examples from fashion to CBD. Plus, should voice assistants have a gender? And what makes a good chatbot? This episode is so neat because it has good old-fashioned branding, voice and conversation design, startups and women creating long-needed products for women, and the keys to designing a great chat experience for your customers or audience. Enjoy. Welcome to the Beetle Moment Marketing Podcast, an exploration of marketing and business with a focus on emerging technology and voice. I'm your host, Emily Binder, and I make this for you. It's time to crawl in. Welcome back to the Beetle Moment Marketing Podcast. I'm Emily Binder, and I am here with my very special guest, Allison Greenberg. Allison is the CEO and co-founder of Aflow, a conversation design studio that democratizes data and equitizes AI. Allison has worked as a brand strategist, verbal designer, and naming expert with over 200 of the Fortune 500 companies. She has a BA in anthropology from Yale, advises 501c3 Code to Inspire, and is chapter founder of Women in Voice New York. Welcome, Allison. I'm so excited to talk with you. Thanks, Emily. I'm pretty pumped to be here, too. Yeah, this is great. You and I connected through voice-related topics, and when I found out that you were an expert in naming, that really caught my eye. I think that language is, of course, so interesting and powerful, and I just wanted to dig in and understand more about your craft as a naming expert. So what does that mean? And tell tell me a little about your background with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, naming is one of those things that you don't know exists until you're doing it. And I often tell people, you know, I traffic in words. Language is my currency. I've always worked uh, in some form of advertising, branding, marketing, or strategy. Um, and language was the core piece of the craft. Naming is really the most condensed uh, honestly, most intensive way to apply language to a brand because you're putting into one, two, or maybe three or four words the name of a company, a product, a service. And you're also trying to consider the legal implications, right? So I work with IP attorneys um, and I work with in-house counsel in order to clear names and make sure that the names I'm recommending to my clients are indeed available. So it's you know, it's really like 70% legal and strategic and about 30% creative. Um, and I've been very lucky to work on naming projects with a ton of enormous enterprises and then everything down to a small startup. Um, but, you know, to me, naming is the way that you take language and you really put it to work for a brand. And I love that fact. It's, it's poetry and it's also strategic execution of ideas. Yeah. Naming does seem really subjective. So how do you objectively define the success of a name? That's a great question. I'm often asked this. People want to pressure test or even um, put into market research a set of prospective names or naming candidates. You know, that's not entirely possible. And the truth is that you can't decouple a name from what it represents. 
right? You can't take the name away from the car or the phone or the service. Uh, they go hand in hand. And then a part of that ecosystem is also the design. Maybe the name turns into a logo, the messaging behind it. Um, so naming doesn't happen in a vacuum, but there are some ways to measure the success of a name. And it's mostly qualitative. I often say that the best names are simple and surprising. And you can actually sort of begin to assess these things on several axes, you know, simple. Is it succinct? Does it consolidate a lot into a smaller amount of real estate? Does it telegraph meaning? There are a lot of different kinds of names from descriptive to suggestive, arbitrary, fanciful. You know, that's the spectrum from like very clear and conversational kind of cut and dry to something um, like Kodak, you know, the name of the, the old uh, film company. Kodak is a completely made up word and it was chosen for its sound symbolism because the K's sounded hard and conveyed strength and trust. So to be simple, you know, you have to really consolidate meaning and you have to make sure that even if you are a made up word, um, that it does cue certain things for people. Exactly what you want to cue for that brand depends on your positioning, your core truth, you know, what does your brand represent? And then the surprising factor is really critical. I think successful names often stop us in our tracks. You know, for some industries, especially in B2B naming, you don't quite have that opportunity. But increasingly, we are seeing that B2B platforms, services, and products can be named creatively and surprisingly. And one of my favorite examples is Slack. Um, you know, mm. when you're on Slack, you aren't thinking about slacking off. You're not thinking about a Slack line. And really, you would never imagine a company called Slack being so powerful in the co-working um, and, and, you know, like digital workspace. It's, it's a name that might cue for some people the opposite of what you want at work as a Slacker. But in fact, Slack is great. It is easy to use. It's easy to say. It's memorable. People say Slack it to me. And actually, Slack is something that people use in order to Slack off more, right? It makes your work more efficient. It allows you to take less time to share documents and communicate with colleagues and hopefully spend more time on actually doing the work. So um, simple and surprising. Those are, my, those are my two criteria for a great name. Those are good ones. And I agree about the K sounds, hard sounds like Kodak, Slack. I find that the more memorable names do have harder consonants, and maybe you can enlighten me as to why that might be, but sometimes I find a softer sounding name, one that maybe has more P's or B's, uh, it doesn't stick with me as much as something with an X or a K or a Z. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I what I just mentioned, Emily, and you're, you're queuing into an entire science. You know, there's incredible... Um, experts in linguistics um, who study this phenomenon of sound symbolism. I think it's also called phonesthesia. Um, there's phonosemantics. You know, it's this idea that like the way a word sounds, those phonemes and the way they come out of our mouths, they have meaning, uh, lexical meaning in terms of the way that language evolves and what word parts mean, but they also have meaning in the way they sound. And so there's this really incredible relationship between sound and meaning. And there are linguists much smarter than I am who could tell you how this field has evolved, but you know, the, there is a representation of a word by sound. A great example is actually with onomatopoeia, you know, when you say fizz, pop, those kinds of words sound a lot like their meaning. And they prove out the theory of sound symbolism. They prove out the theory that say a hard K 
um, because of the way it sounds in English. And what's really cool is sound symbolism is different in every language, but the way a K sounds, Kodak, um, that strength of consonants coming out of your mouth does actually telegraph strength as an attribute, as an attribute of a brand. So, you know, oh. I think this is one of the coolest, uh, it's a cool rabbit hole to go down. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's an entire um, uh, an NPR podcast about this, but really, you know, Kiki and Booba are the classic examples of sound symbolism, but I won't go too, too far down that rabbit hole, but definitely Google sound symbolism if you're interested um, in building a brand name or in understanding the way that sound itself has meaning beyond definition. Okay. Sound symbolism. You can go to beetlemoment.com slash podcast to see the show notes from this episode, which is episode 65 with Allison Greenberg. And we'll have lots more resources, I'm sure, as the conversation continues. Um, I wanted to ask you, as far as naming, you know, you've worked with so many major brands. Are there any that you can talk about? I know you're under NDA with a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Any favorites that stand out or memorable projects approaching naming a brand or a new product? Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate the sensitivity. There's there's a lot of names I would love to talk about with enterprise clients, you know, the Fortune 100s with a lot of name recognition. Um, but I actually find just as fulfilling, if not more, the work that I've done for smaller companies and the NDAs are a little looser there. <laughs> so um, two favorites that come to mind. One uh, is uh, a name that I worked on very early in my career and I've been so inspired to see how this brand has grown. Two young designers uh, basically left the New York City fashion world, had been working for big corporations, and set out to build a name and a brand for their new venture. And when I met them, they were using a name that, unfortunately, this happens in naming all the time, they were using a name that they could not legally own. They were slapped with a cease and desist letter, and then they came to me and my team, and they said, ah, we need a new name, help. And so that's when we began working with what is now called Wear Mountains Meet. And they are a beautiful, sustainable women's wear brand that exists basically out of frustration with the wasteful practices of the fashion industry. And they are really dedicated to making positive uh, social and environmental change. And so you can check them out at Wear, at Wear Mountains Meet on Instagram. And you know they've been in Women's Wear Daily, in um, Vogue, in a ton of incredible big fashion publications, just two young women, the women built brand um, who decided to build a clothing brand a different way and do right by the environment and by uh, independent craftspeople and artisans. So I love that name, Where Mountains Meet. It actually came from a William Blake poem. Um, and the other name I was going to mention, also a women owned brand. Uh, I worked with these two really fantastic founders in, up in Maine who were starting a, a CBD edibles brand, and they were producing chocolates and mug cakes, their confectionery, and they were targeting uh, a fair price point, a, a, a reasonable dosage, because a lot of CD, CBD products are kind of up, upping the dosage, and it's just not necessary, and they also wanted to produce products that were accessible to all realms of society, so not just, you know, your standard CBD consumer, but also veterans and people who really could use the healing and beneficial properties of CBD. And working with the founders of this company was such a beautiful process because they loved language as much as I did. And they, we were able together to come to the name Compound. 
C-A-L-M-B-O-U-N-D. And you can see Combound echoes Compound, which the CBD compound is, is the star of the show here. And then Combound, meaning you're bound for calm, not just the physically healing properties, but the mental calm that many folks get when they consume CBD. Um, and then C, B, and D are in the name. But it's great because they don't have to be super upfront um, with the fact that they're engaging with CBD. And for some people, this is just um, a therapeutic and delicious confection. So yeah, Calmbound, one of my favorites. Oh, I really like that one, Calmbound. So this is all fascinating to me. I've had clients, you know, creating new podcasts or flash briefings, and we do a process of figuring out what to name it and trying to kind of express what the topic is so that it's clear yet to be memorable and stand out and it's it's a true art so i guess <laughs> there there's always a need for for naming do you still work on naming or have you kind of shifted into working on more voice related or chat work yeah yeah no i i think you're totally right it's naming is is kind of an art and it's also a science and having engaged with that science and sort of studied it for many years I can't seem to get away from it, um, but I love working on naming projects. So I still do them. Um, but in 2018, my co-founder Seth Miller and I started a flow, a conversation design studio based in the Bronx. And the following year we were accepted into New Inc, which is a brilliant accelerator, an art tech and design accelerator that's, uh, that comes via the new museum here in New York. And so um, conversational AI has become a bigger part of my time while I'm also kind of running naming projects. And I think I will never be somebody who can do just one thing. I'm a little restless. So, um, so I'm, I'm actually kind of one foot in both worlds. And, and I really like it that way. I find that both involve, again, language as my currency and, and all the work I do is on strategic use of language. And I find that many of my projects in conversational AI and in brand strategy and naming inform one another. Yeah, that's a really neat intersection. And a that you have a background in anthropology also is just such a cool application. I think the most interesting perspectives come from more of a, an intersectional or diverse background. When we're thinking about a new technology, we're thinking about voice, just having NLP in your background you might be missing a whole human element. I'm not saying that those people can't do a good job too, but mm -hmm. coming, I have a background in psychology. I think that the understanding of neuropsychology, but then also social psychology and behaviors and mm. heuristics, mm -hmm. things like that. I mean, that all goes into marketing and it's really just about communication, like this, this art of how we communicate. Something you said when we were discussing topics um, before we started recording, you, you said that it's so important to be brief because getting your message across concisely is more powerful. Can you expand on that a little bit? And like, where do you see marketing, branding, advertising today as far as like, are we using brevity? Are in brevity lies genius or is it verbose? What do you think? <laughs> Emily, I love the irony of expanding upon brevity. This is such a cool oh, yeah. question. <laughs> but no, I mean, so to your point earlier about being interdisciplinary, I don't think brevity comes from any one place. It's very hard to say, I'm going to do something and I'm going to do it succinctly. I think, I mean, to, to your credit, having a background in psychology probably makes you better at hosting a podcast. And 
anyone I've ever met in this voice tech world has had a, a really incredible set of past experiences. It's such an interdisciplinary field. Um, I think brevity is something that can only come with that sort of cross-pollination, um, with the ability to think about multiple things at once. And so, um, you know, my background in caring about brevity definitely comes from uh, kind of learning the ways of branding and language at Siegel & Gale, which is a brand strategy firm where I, I sort of started my career. And it's known as a simplicity company. And at Siegel & Gale, we were often encouraged to say, where can we find brevity? Where can we make cuts? How can you have less on a slide? I've carried that with me through my entire career. And, and so, you know, that's a big hat tip to Nick Contis and Christian Turner and Jeff Schultz, Leah Chu, Dan Cohen, all my colleagues back at Siegel and Gale, um, and to the ethos there. But I think brevity goes beyond um, just the way you look at brand communications. It has to be done visually and verbally. It has to be done in sort of every way, shape, and form because we're constantly bombarded with information in this world. Uh, you know, we're getting a lot of things through screens. And so I think this is something that carries over really well into voice and into conversational AI in general. You don't have a lot of real estate. You've got to say what you've got to say in as few words as possible. And especially in chat where we kind of started at a flow, you know, you're in a little window, oftentimes on Facebook Messenger, on somebody's mobile phone. If you're saying something in too many words, you lose the customer, you lose the audience. And so to me, brevity is kind of a, a, an endless pursuit. Uh, you know, it's I've always said that um, writing can take as long as you want it to, and editing can take as long as you need it to. It's editing is something you could do for years and years and we can't let ourselves because we don't have that luxury. Right. This brevity thing is really interesting to me because in voice, like you said, we have limited real estate and, and really limited time because if it's multimodal, yes, you have a screen, often a smaller screen, like an Echo Show 5, for example, five inch screen. It's not an entire laptop screen and it's not a mobile phone screen in the sense that somebody's face isn't very close to it a lot of the time. So the text can't be small and the graphics that you use need to be impactful. You don't have a lot of space or maybe they're mm -hmm. not even looking at the screen. But when you're programming for voice, like building a custom voice experience, an Alexa skill, for example, a Google action, a Bixby capsule, responding in the fewest amount of words while maintaining, I guess, some personality and a conversational kind of natural flow to it. It's such a strange kind of balance to try to strike, you know, programming for these questions and responses. And you focus on chat. So how do you bake a, the friendly and human element, the tone of the brand into these pre-programmed responses while maintaining brevity? Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, it's, a, it's an endless pursuit as well, just like editing. But I think the key in chat interfaces, and this does pretty much extend to voice, is that you need to remove the writerly voice of what you're putting down. You need to remove all of the formalities of grammar. You need to really think about conversations. And so the way we're talking to each other, you know, like sometimes it's not a complete sentence. I don't always say please and thank you. I'm just trying to telegraph meaning. And in a chatbot, for example, you're trying to telegraph meaning and utility. Like the whole point of a chatbot 
is that you're getting something accomplished. Before we build a chatbot, we align ourselves with a client on use cases. And we're not building chatbots like for pure entertainment. Um, they always have a purpose. So you're using language very much as a driver, as currency. And when you're scripting um, for dialogue, I think it's so important to like do a dump of conversation, but also to read aloud, to do back-to-backs with a partner and play the bot versus the user. And then to comb through all that language and say, where are there unnecessary articles? Where is there even a complete sentence we don't need? And then apply the brand voice, of course, like if the brand um, is an insurance brand, you need to use language of trust. You need to make sure that you're speaking in a really clear, um, legally uh, sustainable manner versus if it's a, a beauty brand. Beauty brands have a little bit more leeway. You can use some emoji. You can even throw a GIF in, um, but only after a, a successful conversation turn. So I think what's really important as well is that people think chatbots are fun and novelty. Um, they're not. They're strategic tools. And so brevity is a tool in that toolbox, essentially. And you need to use brevity when you're scripting um, to strip away all the unnecessary information and to make sure that every conversation turn is either informing, educating, or after something is accomplished, you can entertain. Okay. They're not just a novelty. These are strategic tools. I love that. I, I guess it is kind of a make or break experience. If, if you're looking at checkout, right? Like there's a cart, you're on a website and the chatbot does a great job, maybe answering a question about a product that makes you then buy it or buy a different one that's better suited. That will save a company money because there's not going to be a return or maybe it's avoiding a lost sale. Exactly. And, and I think that's such a great example because there's a few ways that chatbots have been deployed typically, and it's often in the customer service sector. Um, it's al almost always for issue resolution. And um, I love to encourage my clients to think about bots um, not as problem solvers, but as solution creators. Like, think about it as a way for the user to find solutions. They may be coming to you feeling a little bit emotionally charged. Oftentimes you're in a chatbot because you have an error that needs to be handled or you um, want to talk to a person, but you can't get to them. Um, so we just have to be really empathetic with users and we have to acknowledge that um, there are many use cases for a chatbot, but more often than not, we can kind of flip the script and make it less about the problem and more about, I'm a utility, I'm here to help you. Um, and I think that's the best way to show the power of bots is really just focus on solutions, not just on problems. Okay. So creating solutions, that makes a lot of sense. With bots, I've had varying experiences. I think I've seen recommendations that say, if you are programming a chat bot, make it known that it's a bot from the beginning. Don't don't ever try to trick the user into thinking they're talking to a human being. Do you agree with that? Is that a good practice? And, and is that something that if you're programming a chatbot, would you kind of include that in the beginning of the chat? 100%. Yeah, totally agreed, Emily. I think that's that should be standard practice. That is our standard practice at a flow. Um, you know, I, we often can look to California to see the way that, um, that, that law and policy will be shaped. And if you're familiar with the BOT bill, BOT stands for Bolstering Online Transparency, and it's the, the Senate bill in California 1001. 
California made it illegal for bots to pretend to be human. And that's really just echoing a lot of regulations like GDPR that filter from Europe into the states via California, which is obviously a state where a lot of technology kind of takes root. That's just good practice. Uh, you know, bots are often um, masquerading as humans. It sets expectations unreasonably. It gets people frustrated. And let's just be real with them. It's a bot. I, you know, there there can be uh, a lot of ways to say that. I have to say bot and chatbot are kind of loaded terms. And I generally would not counsel any brand to call their own virtual assistant a bot or a chatbot. I, I actually like the term virtual assistant. I think it's a much better term. But I also think you can make your chatbot uh, exist in the first person plural and just say we, you know, we're happy to talk to you. Hi, we're here with X brand. Um, what can we do for you? And, um, you know, in that vein, I think it's really important to consider gender and to really think about the fact that, you know, if you're already disclosing that a bot is a bot, does it have to have a gender? Um, so mm. that's, that's part of my platform at Women in Voice and something that I really care about is, um, ensuring that the biases of the physical world don't get coded into the digital world. And we have a lot of issues with the way that bots are not disclosing, A, that they're bots, um, or B, that they're mimicking female humans predominantly. And we see this, especially in the voice bot world. So, you know, I always commend folks who try to create a bot that is just gender agnostic. It just represents a, a brand or it's gender neutral or as Google does, I love that that Google Assistant can be modulated. It can be a female voice. It can be a male voice. Um, I think that's great. This is such a hot topic, right, which is gender in voice assistants. I'm glad you brought it up. I think I would love your take on this. So what what are the reasons to avoid giving a bot a gender? For example, if you look at Capital One with Eno, which, hey, back mm -hmm. to naming, Eno is E-N-O, which are the three letters that make up one in Capital One. It's genderless. I, mean, I think there, there's a lot of strategy that went into this. It's It's been successful by many measures. Is it good that it doesn't have a gender and why? Yeah, to me, it's great that it doesn't have a gender. And, you know, there's been a standard set, especially in the financial services industry. It's great to see bots like Eno or even Casisto's Kai, you know, it, there's there's no reason to give a bot a gender unless it's strategic. And I will give you an example. The bot we built for Swooby, which is a really brilliant women's care brand, um, they create bra liners um, and are really solving an unmet need for women who experience under boob sweat. It's a super taboo topic. And there's a reason why the founder, Don Hunter, hired us to, to build her a chatbot. You know, it's taboo. And taboos are hard to talk about with people. They're much easier to talk about with virtual assistants. So when we built Dawn's chatbot for her, um, you know, Swooby is a women's care brand, and it made sense for the bot to uh, to take on a, a human persona that was female. And I think women feel more comfortable talking about their own personal health and personal care with another woman. In financial services, it doesn't matter. It, there's no need for a gender. And, you know, I've counseled a lot of clients just to say, listen, your bot doesn't need a gender because it represents a brand and brands typically, I won't say always typically don't have genders. There are some brands that really only target themselves um, towards um, men or women or even non-binary people. But I, I think just it's a strategic question. And then it's a question of where you want to fall on the spectrum of equity. And it can be tricky to execute gender neutrality. 
Um, a lot of the time, the, it's a question of pronouns or it's a question in the voice world of like, well, how will the voice sound? But, you know, look no further than Q, the genderless voice that came out of Virtue in Denmark. Um, we were really excited to partner with them and to start to build out a voice print um, and think about a, a, a phone IVR. And that didn't materialize, but we were still really excited to be exploring the question, how can we execute genderless uh, assistance? And it's possible. It's, it may be trickier, but it's worth the challenge to avoid all of the implicit bias that comes with creating assistance of one gender or the other. Yeah, yeah. Avoiding that bias because why why go down that road if you don't absolutely have to? I think, what is the exactly. the, the bra brand that you mentioned? How do you say it or spell it? Swooby. Yeah, it's S-W-O-O-B-I-E, Swooby. Okay, that's really cute. I like that name. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've noticed other brands in femtech and sextech um, are are going down those roads of let's talk about these topics that used to be taboo when it comes to women's reproductive products or like Thinks or Lola or Cora. All of these brands are just doing a great job. I'm not sure if they have chatbots or not. I've just seen it in kind of their messaging, their email marketing Um It's 10 years ago, you weren't seeing an email subject line that had the word bleed in it. And now Mm -hmm. people are getting the information they need and the products are finally getting better after 40 years of basically zero R&D for that entire industry. Yeah, it's it's really powerful to see how um, specifically Femtech has operationalized this. You know, TIA, the Women's Health Clinic. Um, they really kind of started as a chatbot. And I think this is one of the many utilities of chatbots that is sort of untapped. It's this idea that health, wellness, and even taboo or embarrassing topics um, are so easily explored through an automated interface because there's no judgment. There's no concern about what people are going to think. There's no concern about using the wrong terms or saying something that makes you uncomfortable or even admitting something about your own, um, you know, personal well-being. So it's a great reason to use a bot. Um, and it's a really scalable way to take these topics um, and make them accessible to a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. Well, we're just about to wrap up here. But before we do, I want to ask you kind of a fun question. You're obviously mm-hmm. a well-read, educated, curious person. What are you reading? Is there a book that you would recommend? Love it. Yeah. I I have a book that I would recommend that really goes beyond voice chat or any of these topics. Um, It's a book that I recommend, especially to women, um, but to anyone who is in a space like ours, it's a relatively new industry. And I get questions all the time through women in voice and just through colleagues in general, what should I charge? And what's a fair project scope? Um, You know, these questions of negotiation are really common in our world. And I almost always recommend one of my favorite books, Getting More by Stuart Diamond. And Getting okay. More is, yeah, it's it's just a fantastic um, sort of personal account. It's, it's told through personal stories, um, how to negotiate and how to get more and ask for more in your life. And it's something that I think you can do um, as an individual, you can do as an employee, I do it as as a CEO, as an employer. I always try to get more, uh, both for myself and my company and for my clients. Um, and it's something you can do in conversation design, in building voice experiences and building chatbots. You need to sort of negotiate the relationship with the user. And, you know, Stuart Diamond is this, 
He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He's also a Wharton professor. And I think what he does is to create a really engaging set of stories about his friends and students and colleagues and how they've gotten more out in the world. So it's everything from negotiating a salary to, you know, you get a plate of French fries at a restaurant that are cold and, you know, still frozen. And how do you negotiate your way into getting what you really want in this life? Um, and to me, that is that is really the way that we can all sort of move closer to our full potential. Oh, I love that. Getting more by Stuart Diamond. We will have a link to that and everything else that we've talked in the show notes at BeetleMoment.com slash podcast for episode 65. Allison Greenberg, thank you so much. Let everybody know where they can connect with you. For sure. Yeah. Thank you, Emily. This was great. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Allison Laura with a zero for the O, A-L-I-S-0-N-L-A-U-R-A. Uh, you can also find a flow at www.aflow.id. And check me out on LinkedIn. It's Allison with one L. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you, Emily. When it comes to podcasts and voice platforms like Alexa and Google Assistant, are you confident that your marketing strategy is setting you up for success? I've helped dozens of clients in North America and Europe with voice marketing, and I offer private strategy consultations resulting in a customized action plan. Visit emilybender.com slash call to book your consultation in just a few clicks. That's emilybender.com slash call. Yeah!